Do you ever think about a time when things were better in your life? Here's the odd thing about it. When you're in the midst of it, you don't really realize it. And then you look back at certain times and you go, oh, those were the good old days. Or things seemed simpler then. Things weren't so hard and so difficult then. You may think of those good times when life is so completely discouraging and overwhelming. And you may begin to wonder, will those good times ever return? Will they ever come back? You know, sometimes in our contemporary Christian culture, if you're watching us tonight or archived and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're with us. Sometimes Christians, I I hate to say it, but sometimes Christians can be really, really plastic. And sometimes in our contemporary Christian culture, we don't like to admit that times are tough, that we're going through difficulties. Now, is that okay? Well, we've got to think about that. Now, I'm not talking about drama. If someone's constant life is drama, that's a different story. Their life is constant drama, that's a different story. But it might surprise you that I'm going to make the case to you that the word of the Lord does not blow off or even slightly discount our suffering and our pain. You see, the Lord knows all too well how fragile we really are. And the Lord doesn't say to us, hey, get it together. When we are in true pain, when we're really struggling, when it's really, really hard, the Lord says, look to me. Now, there's a bit of a tension there. Tension are not things that are opposite. They sort of got to keep them in some sort of balance. The Word of God takes our pain seriously. Yet, on the other hand, our strength comes from our confidence in the Lord. In the midst of our pride, we open up the Bible and we find that it rebukes us. It reprimands us. It tells us where we are off. And yet, in our discouragement, in our distress, the word of the Lord provides encouragement. Psalm 126 has the heading that says, A Song of Ascents. Uh, we covered that before, that it's, it's one of the songs that they sang when they were going to and from the feast in Jerusalem. It's a psalm of encouragement for the downcast. A reminder uh, that the Lord has done and will do great things, even when it might not seem that way at the moment. The psalmist seems to recall the time when the people of God had been captives in Babylon. The Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem, took them away as prisoners, and they left the captivity in Babylon to come back to Jerusalem. And it was a time of great, great joy. But remember, the city had been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And so when they came back, it was a 70-year captivity. When they came back, their excitement turned to sorrow as reality set in. What were they doing They were doing what is the title of our message tonight. They were longing for better days. And maybe that's you tonight. 
Maybe you are longing for better days. Verse 1, Psalm 126, verse 1 says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, some versions say when he restored the fortunes of Zion, that Zion, that's Jerusalem, the city of God, the heavenly city, he said this, We were like those who dream. Picture yourself, you're in Babylon, and it is 538 B.C., You are a captive. Maybe you were born there. Maybe you were taken there when you were young. And you're thinking about the homeland. You've either remember as a little kid Jerusalem or you've heard the stories from your grandparents and your heart is longing for your homeland. Your heart is longing for Jerusalem. Listen to the emotion in Psalm 137. Psalm 137 verse 1 says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. The next verse is interesting. You know, like Pastor Neil played guitar. They played harps. It said, we hung our harps up. We were done. And Psalm 137, verse 4, same psalm says this. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I don't know about you, but I feel the pain of just just sitting there and longing for home, not even wanting to sing. And the more you would sing, the more homesick you would get. Many of you know that I have a chronic neurological disorder for about the last four and a half years. Now we here in New Jersey are quarantined, and most places across the United States are quarantined because of the coronavirus. I'm going to be honest with you. I long for better days. I long for better days. Or at least I I long for things to go back to what they were before all of this hit. More than ever in my own personal life, I have come to appreciate good health. I had so many years of just, just really great, great health. And now I have really come to appreciate freedom. I've come to appreciate friends. I've really come to appreciate the fellowship that we enjoy in our church and that I enjoy with other Christians that I know. Despite the prophecies that were in the Word of God, in Babylon, the situation seemed hopeless. So just imagine for a second, you're one of those people that's sitting by the river And you wept as you thought about Zion. You thought about your homeland. You thought about the way things used to be. And then something really strange happened. Somebody was yelling off in the distance. And you're like, what? Is he saying what I think he's saying? And somebody comes running up to where maybe you and your friends are there by the river and says... The king says we can return to Jerusalem. The king says we can go home. You're thinking, what? We're captives. Tell me what you're saying. Repeat that. Where did you hear that? Was that one of those internet hoaxes or something like that? And then the psalmist says, we were like those who dream. 
we thought maybe, you know how you think sometimes you're sleeping and you wake up and you're like, oh, it was a dream. Is this real? It was. It was a miraculous move of God. God spoke and turned the king's heart. And immediately, the 70-year captivity was over. Verse 2, the psalmist writes, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. Other versions say, we were filled with songs of joy. We were filled with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, that would be the unbelieving people around them, the Lord has done great things for them. I mean, even they had to admit it. The people who didn't even believe in Yahweh. They were like, man, their God really came through for them. So when the Lord moved in power, the people of God's hearts went from great sorrow to great joy. It was a time of revival. It was a time of excitement, time to take down the harps and tune them up again and and start singing and singing and singing. The Lord was moving his people. He was moving them out of the land of pain and sorrow. He was moving them out of Babylon, the land of sin, moving them back to the land of laughter, to the land of joy, to the land of worship, to the land and the city of their God. Perhaps we're supposed to see a picture of heaven here as we are called out of this life into the glorious joy and wonders of heaven for all of those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, over 150 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah told them this would happen. But here's the thing. Nobody's really exactly sure on, uh, they debate the dating of the 70 years. And Isaiah even said that the nations would take notice And it was to the surrounding nations who were pagans predominantly, it was undeniable. They said the Lord had done great things for them. And they went from being weepers to thinking they were having a dream to being great rejoicers. What a reminder to all of us. As the people around them watched... Joy is infectious. Wonderful singing and worship that is full of joy and faith is completely infectious. They must have heard those people singing and thinking, my goodness, what their God has done for them. Oh, but friends, at such a time as this, let us remember that a lack of faith is infectious as well. That when we live as unbelieving believers, when we live as if God didn't even exist, that's easily caught by those around us. Now, these days, there's lots of theories about God and and COVID-19. People are wondering, is it his judgment or did it just happen? Well, we don't have the scriptures to go by, so I don't know for sure. But I will draw your attention to an interesting expression that we find in the Bible. When the Lord moves, sometimes it says that the world may know. 
And here we're told it was said among the nations. So is it God's judgment or did it just happen or some combination of the two? I will just say this. I know this for a fact. God has the attention of a lot of people right now. All over the world, people are talking about what is going on. Some people said earlier in the week that this was our Pearl Harbor moment as a country. Perhaps as a church, this is our Red Sea moment. Are we going to stand there afraid, or will we follow the Lord into a new season of life? Will the incessant longing to return to normal, to the way things were, to the same old, same old, will that confiscate our hearts? Will that confiscate our faith and our trust? Or will we work hard to regain hope and joy and be ready for the new direction and the new frontiers that God has for us? As we come to verse 3, in case you forgot already, the psalmist repeats something from verse 2. He said, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Another version says, and we are filled with joy. But as we go into the rest of the psalm, perhaps the best translation is this. The Lord has done great things for us, and we were glad, and we were joyful. Now, the unbelieving people around them are looking at what the Lord had done. How much more the people of God today should be reading their Bibles, remembering the wonderful things that God has done. What a revival of our soul awaits us. What a renewing of our spirit. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. As, you, as we'll see, times for them are tough right now. More than likely, though, they are looking back right now and saying we were overjoyed. Many of us are looking back right now and saying, my goodness, did we have it made. Our ingratitude is probably really weighing on a lot of our souls right now. How we lacked God, being thankful to God for the things that we had. We still have them, but, but how different things are now. Why would they feel this way? Why would I think that they're saying we were joyful? Because they're probably back home right now. And the realities of life has hit them very hard. The hard work that it's going to take to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple is starting to weigh on them. And there is going to be for us, loved ones, a lot of work ahead of us. Many of you know what that's like the disappointment that they feel. Let me give you a couple examples. Some of you know what it's like to fall in love, and it's like a dream. But for some of you, over time, that dream maybe has turned into a nightmare. 
you thought, oh my goodness, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And now it is so hard and is so painful. You know how these people feel. Or maybe you get a new job. And you just dream of all of the good stuff that is going to happen on that job. And then one day you're hit with the reality of the work. And there's going to be things that you don't want to do. There may be office politics. There's job reviews. And maybe you thought you were doing a great job. Only to find out that you were not, or you were doing the wrong job. And then maybe there's cutbacks, or maybe there's even layoffs, or maybe you get fired. For some of you, you become a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's so wonderful, and you think that should be your ticket to Easy Street. You're not going to have any more problems. It's an easy, easy life. Yet soon enough, you find out that life can still be very hard. Soon enough, you find out that even Christians have trouble in their marriage. That even Christians lose their jobs. That even Christians get sick. That even Christians get coronavirus. Here's here's the reality, loved ones. the, The emotional feeling of joy... Not the deep-seated joy that God wants us to have. Just that, that surfacy, emotional feeling. You know, everybody's like, I want to be happy and that kind of stuff. It rarely lasts very long. It must be replaced by deep-seated joy in God. You say, why do you say that? Because life is such a mixture of ups and downs. And our emotions can't manage them, (laughs) can't can't maintain happiness and joy because our emotions are too fragile. And how often we come to the place of asking, where is God now? Because life, even the Christian life, is hard. Hard. If you want to know more about what's going on at this point in time where we, we, we've seen, they seem to be, I would point you to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. When the joy of returning met the reality of life, they had to rebuild their country, as we said. And in the process of rebuilding their country and in the process of rebuilding their homes, Their faith deteriorated. Quite honestly, their faith fell apart. And that happens when we get far from God. And this is a season that we're in right now, loved ones, that's going to make some of us strong like steel. 
and it's going to make others of us really seem weak. I'm not going to ask you what you want to be because I know what you want to be. They had to rebuild the temple, but they procrastinated. They were too busy building their own homes. So they had a nice house. Oh, we need a new bathroom. Oh, let's put a new garage, two-car garage. Let's put a three-car garage and another driveway extension. We got more vehicles to do that. And the house of the Lord, the temple, remained in ruins. And even some complained, well, it won't be as good as the first temple. It won't be as good as King Solomon's temple. And what happened? Discouragement begins to set in. How easily in our discouragement, how easily in our being overwhelmed, we forget the word of the Lord that was spoken at this very time in Israel's history, the second half of Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but my spirit says the Lord of hosts. As a pastor, it's Unfortunately, it's easy for me to see how life wears down a lot of followers of Jesus. It's easy to see how many lose the joy of their salvation. By that we mean the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, adoption into the family of God. Every sin you've ever done, forgiven. Everything you do for God in Jesus' name, rewarded. And God allows you to come in and live in his kingdom simply because you've put your trust in Jesus. But people lose that joy. Often you see people lose the joy of service. The Son of Man, Jesus said, he said of himself, he came not to be served but to serve. And when you see Jesus as a servant, that's when you will become a servant. But when you lose the joy of your salvation, you lose the joy of service. Not because of what you're doing, but because you've lost the joy. Many have experienced victory over sin. Oh, we're so excited. Yet, other sins are stubborn. And we beg God, and yet they don't change, and we grow impatient with the Lord. We get busy, like they did in Haggai's day, and Zechariah's day. We get busy. We have no time for the house of the Lord. We're busy with our house. We're cutting our lawn. We're, we're doing this and doing all other kinds of things. We have places to go and things to do, and, 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 we, and we stop attending church. And we lose the joy of fellowship. We have ideas to serve God. But we're so busy, we really never get to them. They don't pan out. We get no traction. So before you even realize it, before you even see it, others do, we've lost our joy And we are struggling, and we often start to blame it on others. 
So what's the way back for you? What's the way back for me? What's the way back for these people? I think it is to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all that goes on. And we often say around here that God is in control of a world where much that goes on he hates. And remembering that God is all powerful. Friends, we have to keep our eye on the Lord. It is absolutely essential. Many of you know or remember the story of of Peter walking on the water. And so he's out there. Jesus says, hey, come on out, man. Jesus is walking on the water. He says, come on out, man. Let's go for a stroll. And, and, And he's walking towards Jesus, and he's good. But there's wind, and there's waves. Let's call them problems. He's got problems. We all have problems. But when he only looks at the problems, when he only looks at the wind and the waves, what happened to him? He began to sink. That's why we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Verse 4, the psalmist prays. He says, bring back our captivity. Now, a lot of people are not sure what that might mean. Initially, only about 50,000 people came back with them. A lot of people didn't come back. Maybe they need more people to come back because of this crazy, overwhelming rebuilding plan that they have to do. Um, Another version says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then the psalmist gives us a great visual of what this renewal will look like. He says, as in the streams, as the streams in the south. Now this is one of those times where you sit there and you go, this is why I don't read the Bible. I don't know what in the world he's talking about. Well, the streams in the south, when it it was during the dry season, would just be bone dry. Bone dry. And they would count on just a little bit of snow, just a little bit of rain up in the mountains coming down and filling up those streams. And they knew that it was the Lord that did that. They counted on God to fill up those streams. There was nothing they could do to do it. Absolutely nothing. And so from the joys of and thankfulness of being able to return from exile of being able to return home, the psalmist's prayer turns to a new reality. They came back to devastation, and they need a miracle. They need God to totally fulfill his promises. Like verse 1, the sudden release of of the people. Here, the psalmist prays for a sudden release of God's blessing. In Haggai chapter 1, when they were neglecting the temple, the crops were weak, and the people wanted God to lift his hand of judgment. They knew that they weren't weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so here, the psalmist prays. You know what's a sad thing to me? As I often hear from people that they are intimidated by the long, hyper-spiritual prayers of people. Personally, I, I love the prayers of the Bible writers. 
I love it when Jesus talks about childlike faith. The prayers of the Bible writers are often so short and so simple. Lord, we need water. (laughs) We can't have a good crop without water. We want you to bless us. Do you know what they're saying? They're looking back at the time when the Lord miraculously freed them from captivity, and now they're looking at the situation that they're in, and you know what they're saying to God? Would you please do it again? Would you please do it again? Perhaps I think that's so childlike because it reminds me of one of my children. I won't tell you. I have three, uh, two boys and a girl. Uh, But the one who has the little boy... (laughs) who's my daughter, who's probably watching. Her little boy, whenever she does something fun, wants her to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. She's like, we did this for an hour. And I said, yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because my little girl used to do that to me all the time. I used to throw her up in the air. I'd say, Daddy, do it again. I'd tickle her. I'd say, Daddy, do it again. Make her laugh. Daddy, do it again. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. Daddy, do it again. Please. Do what again? Move quickly with abundant blessing. Deliver your people like you did from Babylon. And so the psalmist prays for a downpour of grace. That the Lord would bring grace like rain. Upon the land. You see, biblical prayer often looks back at what the Lord has done and rejoices, and at the same time, looks forward in dependency. Lord, we know you can do this because we read the scriptures. We know it. We know you can do this. Lord, we're asking you to do it again. That is not nostalgia. Too often, nostalgia leads to weak faith. But here the psalmist is teaching us that God's work in the past is the basis for our hope. The psalmist knows that God is good. And the psalmist knows that that won't change. That means that the psalmist knows, that the Bible writers know, That careful Bible readers know that good can always come out of a crisis. Notice the honesty. I love the honesty of the Bible. They are so not plastic. God, my life, our lives are like a dry desert. Pour out your spirit like rain. And bring us to life. In verse 5 and 6, the psalmist closes with an important point. Some people say all we can do is pray, and we must. Trust me, we must. But but we have a part two. Verse 5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Sowing is is throwing out the seed for for a crop. 
Another version says, those who sow in tears shall reap with songs of joy. Another says, shall reap with shouts of joy. So here we have the picture of the psalmist knows this, God brings the rain. God brings the water. But we bring the seed. The farmer brings the seed and plants it. That's his part. And then says to the Lord, Lord, we need rain, but not too much. We need sunshine, but not a drought. Yes, we pray, loved ones, but we also work. That work is hard. How hard is it? Look how he describes it. We sow in tears. We're throwing out the seed in tears, hoping, praying, begging. Doing what we have to do, but begging God to do only what, what only he can do to answer our prayers. Friends, let's be honest like the Bible writers. Sometimes the only crop is discouragement. Sometimes in life, everything breaks or is already broken. Sometimes people want to help you, but they can't. Sometimes you want to help people, but you can't. Sometimes you share the word of the Lord with people and they totally dismiss you. Sometimes people come to you with a problem and God is pouring wisdom out of you. You're like, you know it's not you. You're like, I'm not this bright. And what do they do? They go, it's a great idea. And then they go do the exact opposite. And there's a problem. Or perhaps you tell God, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I'm going to change. And you get worse. You see, right now, the only water they have are the tears of the people falling onto dry ground. And nothing grows. That's why he wants the Lord to bring rain. Practically speaking, in this situation, throwing out seeds on dry ground with no water, what hope is there of a harvest? Practically speaking, there's no hope. But notice, the faith-filled sower continues on. He doesn't stop. He doesn't doesn't say, well, what's the point? He sows his seed. Loved ones, in the midst of our longing for better days, God wants us to persevere. God wants us to be the faithful sower, trusting him to restore. Now, it is true, sometimes God does move quickly. But more often, it's very slow for our tastes. I know we like to say, you know, God's right on time. But I don't really think we believe that. I think we believe he's late, certainly later than we want him to be. We're okay with other people waiting, but not with us waiting. And so we find often that blessing comes as we are working hard, 
as we are praying and as we are waiting. So despite the odds, despite the heartache, the psalmist encourages us to continue trusting in the promises of God and moving forward. And here's the thing about heartache and tears. It's something that we really don't see. We might be with our tears just preparing the ground for harvest. John 4, 36 and 38, Jesus said, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows, here the psalmist says you can sow in tears, and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. I want to say this to all the adults. Has it crossed your mind that we might right now, right now, be in a historic period of sowing in the history of the world? That God may use this time to raise up a strong, faithful people. Some will give up but a strong, faithful people that will be used mightily to raise up the next generation of people who harvest the crop. God is not judging you on whether you're sowing, working the land, or you're harvesting. He is judging you and I. He is looking for faithful people. Verse 6 He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing bearing seed for sowing. Another version says carrying seed for sowing. And so so the psalmist then gives us another visual of what renewal will look like. Shall doubtless come again, another version says return, with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves. Those are big bundles of grain. Bringing his sheaves with him. The Lord is looking forward to a plentiful, wonderful harvest. It's important to see that the blessing of God, friends, does not negate our responsibility. And here the sower has to take a big step of faith. How? By throwing out his seed. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, If we throw out our seed and nothing grows, where do we go? We go down to the hardware store. We go on Amazon. We go on some website, some some, gardening website or something like that, and we order seed. Where did they get their seed? From the last harvest. And the last one had been bad. That means if this harvest is bad again, next year will be completely awful. Or perhaps nothing. And they look up in the sky, and they can't even see a cloud. And they look at the ground, and it's hard as a rock. Here is the psalmist is teaching us how important it is to trust in the presence and power of God 
even in the uncertainties of life, even in the heartache of life. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning, then comfort. Weeping, then joy. The scripture talks of suffering, and then for the faithful, glory. Acts 14, the apostle Paul and Barnabas were visiting churches, and it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Don't give up. And saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. The psalmist's point is this. While it might not seem like it today, better days are coming. But not without some suffering and not without lots of hard work. For a follower of Jesus, the Lord will eventually turn dry times into abundant rivers of joy and hard work into a great harvest. How can you be so sure of this in such difficult times? Well, I can tell you one thing for sure. God is moved by our tears and by our sorrows. But I can tell you even something more than that that makes me sure. Because Jesus Christ is the faithful sower who sowed the seed of the word of God on the ground of people's hearts. Jesus told us that some of the seed fell on the path and the birds ate it. What does that mean? People heard the word of the Lord and they're like, whatever, whatever. And Jesus said that Satan snatched it away. He said there was other seed that, that got scorched by the sun Hard times came and they gave up too soon. They had no root. It's like those little plants that grow on the side of your driveway. The little tiny root. Any kind of weather thing happens. Somebody steps on them. It, it doesn't, doesn't last. Oh, they're excited. Yes, we heard the word of the Lord. This is the best church I've ever been to. See you next week. I'm always like, goodbye, see you. Jesus said a third kind of seed or soil. Others grew up among the thorns. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out. I certainly hope that's not going to be us when we get to the light at the end of this tunnel. But some fell on good ground, and Jesus said it yielded a good crop. But notice, Jesus never gave up. Jesus kept sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing. He had large crowds following him, and at the end, he had nobody following him. And he sowed the seed of the word of God. And then when he came to the Garden of Gethsemane, he sowed in tears as he cried out to his father the night before the cross. And then on the cross... He sowed in blood. All the while, confident in the promises of God. Jesus said this, John 
23 through John 12, 23 through 24. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He, went down, he died and went into the ground. And for all who turned to him and put their trust in him, they will be his harvest. Yet still, on this side of heaven, we fight discouragement. We fight depression. We fight a feeling of helplessness. Like the psalmist, we long for better days. But until then, Jesus calls him, us to himself and to faithfulness. The cross and resurrection of Jesus guarantees all who trust in Jesus the days of glory are ahead of us when all of our tears will turn to joy. And here is the great promise, my dear friends. That won't be a dream. That won't seem like a dream. That will be our new, eternal, heavenly reality. And we will be with Jesus. Let's pray.